We are continuing our study in the book of Acts. Uh, We'll read it in just a second, but just to remind folks where we've left off. A few weeks ago, we looked at Peter and John as they had performed this miraculous healing of this lame beggar, were proclaiming the good news, and were arrested in the temple courts, and eventually faced a night in jail and some questioning uh, by uh, the leader, the Jewish leaders. Uh, They ended up being released uh, because the Jewish leaders were afraid of the crowds, um, and they're on their way home on their way back to uh, the, the, the group of Christians that had gathered, and they were giving a report. So let's go ahead and read uh, the, the word here from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, as found in your bulletins. Uh, you can follow along with me. <clears throat> when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and through who through who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the faithfulness of these early witnesses who spread your word without fear in the face of uh, threats and persecution. Lord, may it be that we would have that same prayer on our lips for boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I kind of wonder what the disciples were thinking as they ran back to tell their friends about their ordeal, about being confronted by authorities, uh, being confronted by the most significant men of that place. I wonder how they felt. Were they relieved? I'm sure they were a bit relieved. Uh, were they anxious? I'm sure they were still a bit anxious. Um, if, if you've ever been questioned by an authority figure... Uh, you know that feeling, right? That feeling of like tight fear and anxiety that comes. And even afterward, you still have that sort of shaky relief, right? Um, and maybe I'm the only one that's been questioned by authority. I don't know. Um, but if you've been given a warning, you know that feeling, uh, that, that shaky sense of relief, that nagging anxiety, remaining worry um, that it might happen again. Well, they went back and they relayed everything to their, to their brothers and sisters, the fellow believers who were there, um, who at, up to this point had really 
not faced much hardship, right? They, they had enjoyed sweet fellowship together. They had enjoyed worship together. They enjoyed a sort of a unity and, and, and a service towards one another and towards others. They had seen and witnessed the power of the gospel in, 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 in uh, miraculous events of healings and the like. They had heard the Word of God preached. They had seen uh, thousands of people come to faith. It's it's quite uh, remarkable, their experience up to this point. But now, all of a sudden, everything's in question. Their fearless leaders, Peter and John, had been arrested. I'm sure they felt a sense of anxiety, don't you think? Uncertain. Maybe, maybe they had doubts. Maybe we can't stand up to the authorities. All this is for naught. Maybe this was just the, the, the beginning of something much more terrible. Maybe they even allowed seeds of doubt to grow in their minds about God's ability to control the situation. I don't know exactly how they felt. But I do know exactly what they did. We're told here in God's Word exactly what they did. They cried out to God. They prayed for boldness and for God's continued power, His miraculous signs to be performed. I've often thought about our own situation here in America and how much of an anomaly our Christian experience is. If we go sort of across the globe or we go back through history, uh, the history of Christians throughout time is not one of ease and comfort. Uh, But here we are this morning worshiping in a town hall. Does that not strike any of you as a little miracle in and of itself? That, That we live in a time and a place where we can freely proclaim the name of Jesus in the seat of local authority here in West Hartford. Uh, This certainly was not the case for most of church history. And even if we go across the globe today, Christians face suppression, oppression, persecution, even death. Jesus himself said it this way in John 15, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's the normative Christian experience. What we experience here in the West and America is fairly anomalous. So when we read a text like this, It can feel a bit distant. And yet, I think it remains instructive to us, not only because persecution, as Jesus said, really is to be expected, but also because our text this morning reveals something to us both about ourselves, who we are, but it also tells us something about God and His character, and His nature, and His purposes. It reminds us that God has everything everything under His control and His purview. And in regards to ourselves, the text tells us about our desperate needs. How we're, how we're so dependent upon our God. And so if this is the case, what do we need to do? What's our response 
This is, this is kind of, we're going to unfold all of this, but what's our response? I think this is our response. We're, we're taught through this scripture to cry out to the Lord whose plan never fails. We're called to cry out to the Lord whose plan never fails. Let me ask the question to you, and the question is for me as well. Is that your natural posture? Is one who is regularly before the Lord crying out, Or is our posture more one of worry, anxiety, fear? I think oftentimes instead of getting on my knees and praying to the Lord of heaven and earth for boldness, I often end up in a place of just worry and doubt. But our text encourages us to cry out to the one who is all-powerful, the Lord of hosts, the Sovereign Lord. And I want to look at this in three parts. Real basic, crying out, what it looks like to cry out. Secondly, crying out to whom? To the Lord. We're going to look at crying out to the Lord. And then I want to see how His plans never fail. Crying out. Why, why is prayer so hard? You think about what it is. It's a really basic activity, isn't it? Lord... It's using our words and speaking the thoughts in our mind to God, saying, Lord, help me. Lord, how do I make sense of this situation? Lord, give me strength. Lord, all these types of prayers, for whatever reason, don't you find it difficult? I read a passage like this and I'm struck by their reflex of prayer. Their reflex. The text says that when they heard the report from Peter and John about their time with the religious authorities, they lifted their voices together to God. Their, their initial, their, their first movement, when they heard the report, was to turn to the Lord. I grant you, at, at times of great anguish, at times of distress, I think it's a time we're most prone to go to the Lord in prayer, or at least desire to pray, and sometimes we do, right? Sometimes in those moments of stress and anxiety, we have nowhere else to go, we turn to the Lord in prayer, but if we're honest, sometimes we don't. <laughs> I'm always grateful uh, for believers fellow believers, when I'm ever in a situation where some news or some terrible thing comes to our attention and we're, we're at a loss, I'm always thankful for a believer who says, you know what, let's take this to the Lord in prayer. And then in that moment I think, why didn't I say that? Why do we struggle to pray? I think there's, there's a myriad of reasons why we struggle to pray. I think when we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, that the evil one doesn't desire us to pray. It's like the last thing that he wants is for us to go to the Lord in prayer. He'll put whatever barrier he can in your way to prevent you from prayer. I think there's other reasons. I think oftentimes we lack faith that God actually works through prayer. We're honest with ourselves. That's sometimes the case, isn't it? Why pray? Nothing changes. I think sometimes that when we pray, to go to the Lord in prayer means letting go of ourselves. It means humbling ourselves, right? It means laying down our our sense of autonomy, our sense of omnicompetence and omnipotence that, that we often get, that, well, I just need to buck up and do this thing. Well, you know what? You're not capable. 
You need to go to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes we just don't pray because we don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. We struggle with prayer. And these are just a few of the reasons why we struggle to cry out to the Lord. Yet prayer is that means by which we commune and communicate with the living God. It's the way in which we show our utter dependence and recognition of His, His not only His fatherliness and care over us, but His, His power and authority and rule over our lives. It's the way in which we have fellowship with our God. When we go to the Lord in prayer, we're recognizing all of those things, our place before our God. Throughout the Scripture, not only are we commanded and taught to pray, but prayer is associated with a relationship, isn't it? It's why the Lord wants us to pray. God is sovereign. He is powerful. He can do whatever He wants. But He desires that we would ask. Why? Because He wants to be in that intimate, communing relationship with us as His people. Prayer is an expression of our dependence on God just as our own children, right? Depend on us. When we go to the Lord in prayer, it's, it's like a child coming to his parents saying, Lord, I need you. And the difference is that while as parents, we oftentimes tire of our kids asking for things, right? Like, really? This is like the millionth time? Just do it yourself? Yeah, you know, we do that as parents because we're weak. Our Father in Heaven never tires of hearing us pray. Jesus said in John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. It's a promise. Crying out to God should be a first impulse. But another thing that struck me in this text was that they lifted their voices together. This is the word that we've seen actually a few times now since chapter 1. It's come up in chapter 1, came up in chapter 2, it's now here in chapter 4. And there were other words that were used to talk about this same idea. One was this idea of fellowship, koinonia. But this word in particular has to do with having the same mind, the same aims, the same purposes. That's, this language here has to do with the, the, the people coming together with the same cry. That's the, the language here. You might translate the text. They lifted up their voices with the same concerns and desires. It makes me think of Psalm 133 when it says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When brothers and sisters dwell in unity when they cry out together. And how, how true is that? When you gather together to pray, when you're, when you're with your friends or your family, you're in a small group, when we're here as a church together, when we pray, and we have the same concerns, we're of one voice and one mind, how good it is, how precious that moment is. They came together with one purpose. They lifted up their voices. It was a first impulse, and they did it together. Churches often take on a particular character, don't they? Oh, that church is all about uh, outreach and missions. That church is all about the ministry of the Word. They're very doctrinal. They, they have the truth. This church is all about fellowship and community. They do a great job at that. And, you know, ideally, the church does all of those things. 
right? But churches take on a character. And, you know, as I was getting to know CCPC, I was trying to learn its character. What is what makes it tick? What are its strengths? What would it be like if CCPC was described as a praying church? They're a church that's committed to prayer. That would be a great description of a church. A church that humbly came before the Lord and said, We need you, God. All those things, all those good things that we do, the preaching of the Word, outreach and missions, service and ministry to the community, fellowship and gathering, all of those things are important. But what would it be like if we were a church that was committed to prayer? Those things would be all the greater, wouldn't they? They cried out. They prayed and they prayed to the Sovereign Lord. That's the second point. There are two parts to the prayer. The first is a declaration and the second is a petition. And we'll take those two things in turn, the declaration and then the petition. Um, But before I do that, I just want to note something about the the general structure or pattern that we see. I, I, I think this prayer here is a good pattern for praying. A declaration, declaring something about the character and the work of God. God, you are this. God, you have done these things, often associated with thanksgiving as well, right? It's a a good model. And then going into the petition, Lord, this is who we are, this is what we need, often associated with confession. Uh, One of the classic patterns of prayer is, of course, the acronym for ACTS, right? And it's a good, we're looking at the book of Acts, I think it's a helpful little uh, acronym. You have adoration, that's a declaration, adoration, Lord you are, Lord praise your name because of who you are, adoration, confession, Lord we confess our own brokenness, who we are. And then, of course, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, but we thank you for who you are. You see that kind of back and forth? And then petition, Lord, help us in our time of need. There are other, of course, patterns. This is, these are just good, helpful tools to think about. How do I go to the Lord in prayer? But one just general one. Declare who God is. Ask Him for what you need. It's a helpful little paradigm we see here. No, no rigid formula, but structuring our prayers can often help us maintain focus and make it God-centered and God-honoring. So, what, are the, what is the declaration? There's a declaration of God's person and power. The prayer opens with this, Sovereign Lord, just, just for curiosity's sake, the Greek word here is despot. Just, just letting you know, we often associate despot with something terrible, but the, the Greek behind this is just, all it means is the one who rules wholly without any other person involved in the ruling, right? So a despot is somebody who is, takes all control and all power. But when that's spoken of God, that's a good thing. That's saying He is the one who sovereignly rules over everything. He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. I, I, I know it's a strange, for us, despot is a negative word, but here it means sovereign Lord. And it's a, it's a common, uh, this, this opening to this prayer is a fairly common way to open a prayer uh, in the Old Testament. It's a declaration of God's sovereignty and then His works and acts in creation. You're the one who made and created all things. The God of glory, there is none like you in all the earth. So why did they use this somewhat 
I would call it even an almost formulaic approach. Sovereign Lord, creator of the heavens and the earth. And that's a, that's a, 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 a summary of what, what is said here. I, I don't think it was... Sometimes we pray words, but we don't really think what they mean. Uh, kids do this because they're learning to practice. They're learning to pray. So oftentimes they'll just throw out words and they come all jumbled. But, or even they'll throw out phrases, but they don't have a real sense of what they mean. That's okay. We're learning to pray. Um, but I don't think that's what the, 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 the disciples here were doing. I think they were doing something much more significant. Firstly, they were honoring and glorifying God. By declaring this truth that God is God, the sovereign God, the creator of everything... Uh, despite how they feel about their circumstances, despite their feelings of doubt and anxiety about possible persecution and what's going to happen to the, this little burgeoning church, despite all of those things, they're saying, Lord, we feel all this, but we know this. You are God. Creator of heaven and earth, there is none like you. Sometimes uh, we give voice to our doubts, and this isn't a bad thing. Confessing our doubts to God is a good thing. It's a way that we bring to light uh, you know, our own trials and, and troubles and worries and fears. But it's a confession, not a declaration. Uh, maybe, maybe that distinction's lost on you, but, but oftentimes the declaration is something that despite how we feel, despite our experience, we declare something to be true because it is, because the Word of God has told us, God, you are sovereign. I don't experience that. I have great anxiety and fear, but you, I know, are God. Is that how we think? Oftentimes I think there's a sometimes... Maybe a, 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 an attempt at authenticity. And that's not a bad thing. We want to be authentic before the Lord. But there's an attempt at authenticity that says, I can't, I can't express something that I don't feel. So it's, sort of a, it's, it's a very postmodern type of thing. It's kind of our, our day and age type of thing to say, I can't express something that I don't feel. The reality is, there are many things that I feel that aren't true, but there are things that are true I don't feel, and those things that are true that I don't feel I need to express. Why? Not only are we honoring and glorifying God by expressing this truth, but the other thing that we're doing is we're instructing our hearts. We're reminding ourselves in the midst of our fears and anxieties and doubts, we're saying, I know this. I want to remind myself of this. God, you are God. He's the one that has made all things. He is the King of kings. Never mind just the king of these high priests and these temple leaders. He's the king of the emperor of Rome himself. That's what they were thinking. Well, the disciples here declare God's greatness and power, and then they ask God for boldness, the petition. They ask God for boldness and for Him to display His power. The thing that marks their petition, so we're going to talk a little bit about their petition, but the thing that marks their petition, and that really ought to mark all of our petitions to the Lord, is their humble submission to God. It's the position they put themselves in, right? 
We'll come back to the particulars of God's purposes in a moment to end, but I, I just want us to look at their approach. They declare His plan predestined. Now, I recognize that this is a word that is fraught with all sorts of questions and you know, creates its own level of anxiety. What does it mean that things are predestined? Uh, the word means that God has foreordained or has planned from eternity past the things that will come. And in particular, when, when they're using this language, they are talking about the redemption through Jesus Christ. So everything that had to do with that, the, the crucifixion, the suffering and persecution of Jesus, the hanging on the cross, all of it was part and parcel to what God had planned. And they used Psalm 2 in order to show how this was all part and parcel to the plan. But they were saying, in this language, they were saying, Lord, we know that you are sovereign and that you have all things in your control. There's nothing outside of that. So, Lord, we trust you. Uh, that, that's a, a, a sort of a, a summary statement of what they're, what they're getting at when they say that their, his plan was predestined. By considering themselves within this God-ordained purpose, foreordained purpose, they relinquish any sense or mirage of control. When we don't think God is sovereign, when we don't think He's in control of the situation, what do we do? We grab hold. We think, well, i got to fix this situation. By, by declaring that God is sovereign, that He's in control, it puts themselves under God and says, Lord, we, we pray this, right, in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a place of recognizing God's sovereign hand. And so they declare themselves to be holy servants. That is, servants that are set apart by God for Him, to be used by Him for His glory. That's where they put themselves. Do you see that? The, 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 the position of the petition, one of recognizing their place underneath God's sovereign rule. And so they ask God for both boldness to proclaim the Word and for God to perform signs and wonders. And they do this with confidence because they understand that God has called them to this purpose. You see, they, they can go to the Lord and say, Okay, Lord, because you are sovereign, because you, are, you have a plan to proclaim your word across the nations, because you have put us here for this purpose, Lord, make us bold. Take away our fear. Because, Lord, this is your work. Display your power. Stretch out your arm. I often think our prayer life is most lackluster when we fail to see the big picture of God's redemptive work. Do you see how they go back? They go back to the Old Testament. They talk about God's big plan, that God had begotten His Son and declared His Son the King and He was going to conquer all His enemies. They had gone to the big picture to look at the, the large scope of what's going on so that they wouldn't get caught in the sort of minutia of their own suffering. Sometimes that's what we do. We get so bogged down, so... Um, what is it called? Like myopic? Is that a good word? So focused on our experience and what's going on in the, in the meantime, right now, here and now, that we forget the big picture. 
they went back to the big picture and said, Okay, Lord, because you are doing this great thing. You, are, you have sent Christ. He has been crucified, but he has resurrected. He's ascended, and you've sent your Holy Spirit, and you've called us to go and proclaim the gospel across the lands. Because you've done all of that, Lord, make us bold that we might go forth and proclaim the good news. Our prayers become small when we fail to see the big picture. It's interesting, you'll notice nowhere in their prayer that they ask for God to take away the persecution. And it's not to say they couldn't have prayed that. And Paul himself says, take away this thorn in the flesh. Uh, you know, there's, there's places where it may be appropriate for them to call out, cry out for help from God. Um, but it wasn't their focus. Their aim in their prayer was on the kingdom of God advancing. You see, they had a big story, a big picture. Here the disciples recognized that God was doing something magnificent. And they simply asked to be used by Him. That's what they wanted. Bring glory to God, to be used by Him. Let me ask you the question. Does that mark your prayer life? I'll be honest with myself, it doesn't always mark mine. We spend a fair amount of time now looking at prayer, something we're called to do, but I want to close what I think is the very heart of the passage. Something God does and is doing. We cry out to the Lord, whose plan never fails. His plans, they never fail. We cry out to a God who is working. Uh, it's interesting here. They quote Psalm 2. We, we read it earlier in the, in, the, in the service. The psalm is what we would classify a messianic psalm. In it, God and His anointed, the Messiah, His Son, are plotted against. They're, they're railed against by, it says, by all the, the kings and the peoples of the earth. And yet the Father, who kind of laughs, literally scoffs at all the people that are railing against Him. Why? Because, well, He's God. Remember, He's the sovereign King. And He, he, he looks down and He says, to, This is your job, son. <laughs> you're going to vanquish all my enemies. And you're going to go out and you are going to... Uh, preserve a people. That, Psalm 2 is sort of the picture of Jesus' work in a microcosm way. I'm going to bring justice. And the justice comes, right? In the most ironic way, the way that nobody expected it to come. Jesus came. The conquering king came. as a little baby in a manger. Grew up. Was despised and rejected. Wasn't considered much. Preached for a little while. And then was crucified and died. The plan of God was suffering and persecution for Jesus. But of course, that suffering and persecution means what? Salvation, right? What an amazing thing. Here, God said, I'm going to, I'm going to bring about justice. And what does He do? He takes His Son... Plan from eternity past, takes his son and gives him over to be crucified. And on the cross, as he's dying, the whole wrath of God for sin is poured out on Jesus. So that those who are oppressing Jesus, those who are rejecting Jesus, for us as sinners, 
we might have life. What an, ama- what an amazing story. I never tire of that gospel story. I hope you never tire of it. That while we were yet His enemies, Christ died for us. plan included the suffering of Jesus. And is it a surprise that we too would be called to suffer? If our Lord Jesus is called to suffer as we go out and proclaim the gospel, uh, is it a surprise? James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. The suffering of Christ and our suffering for Christ are included in God's redemptive Story, But God stretched out His hand here in the text. You see, God's not only working on some grand plan. He, he is. He's got a grand plan. His kingdom is coming. And His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a guarantee. He's redeeming His people. But He also works in the lives of individuals like you and me. Look at the, the, the sort of amazing thing. They ask for boldness. They cry out to the Lord for boldness. And they ask Him to display His power. And so what does He do? He shakes the very building that they're in. Now, why is that such a big deal? He could have done it in a ver- various ways, but He wanted to remind them, My hand is strong. I have all creation in my hands. Do not fear. I am with you. Don't be afraid. And what else does He do? He gives them His Holy Spirit and they are proclaiming the Word with boldness. Do you see here what it says in verse, um, here in verse 31? And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. He gives them a sign. He shows them His might. I think sometimes when we pray, we don't really think God's going to act. I kind of wonder if they, th- they thought. I mean, they, they, they declared God's power. They declared His sovereignty. They declared His work that He was doing uh, of redemption. But do you think they expected that the whole building was going to shake? And that that boldness would come on them like a shot? Probably not. But Jesus promises in His Word that He will answer our prayers doesn't always answer them the way that we want or the way that we think they should be answered. But He answers us. He stretches out His arm. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, the right arm of the Lord, the arm is always talking about the strength of God. And here, He stretches out His arm. This past Sunday, I was worshiping uh, at another church while I was on vacation. And the pastor reminded us that God can do so much more than we ever expect or imagine. And he said it over and over again. And you know, the first time he said it, it was like, yeah, of course he can, of course he can. By the third or fourth time that he said it, I'm like, do I believe that? Here at CCPC, do we believe that? That God can do more than we ever expect or imagine. His arm is outstretched and there is nothing beyond his control. Finally, He is a God of grace. Fundamentally, the work that God is doing in and through the disciples is a work of grace. They're asking for boldness is in order that they might proclaim Jesus. 
the very end of Psalm 2, I don't know if you noticed this, there's a lot of, a lot of hard things in it, but if you turn over to the Scripture reading in Psalm 2, this was in, the, of course, the back of the mind when they prayed these words. But at the very end, you have all this stuff about Jesus coming, and, and He says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Strong language about the judgment of the Lord coming. And it's a warning to all of us, to the kings of the world, to all peoples. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. That's all scary stuff. But you can't miss the very last words. Did you see those? Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What the disciples are doing when they are asked to to, to give boldness. Is they're, they're, they're asking to be able to proclaim that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who hung on a cross, who was persecuted and who died, the hands of the people has made a refuge in Him for the world. This is, this is the grace of God that His outstretched arm, His strong arm would be displayed in the redemption of people. That sinners like us who rebelled against God could have hope. That could find refuge in Jesus. Though we were opposed to Him, He loved us. He died for us. Who is a God like this? Cry out to Him, our Sovereign Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are pretty small focused in our prayers and often don't think about what you're doing in the world. Even what you're doing here in Hartford or in Connecticut or uh, in this land. But Lord, we cry out to you because we are helpless. And we need your strength. We need your arm. We need your grace. Give us boldness to proclaim the good news to our neighbors and our friends. Help us to be fearless. Help us to see that we are a part of the story of redemption. That you've called us as your people, as a holy people, set apart for you. Lord, be gracious to us. Help us as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who strengthens and encourages us. Encourage us to stay in the gospel. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.